0: I didn't want to get anywhere near a hot mic while the song was going on. <laughs> You'll have to forgive me. <sighs> Jesus says, God is our king, we just sang, our precious king. What does that mean to call him our king? What is a king anyway? What is our relationship to the Father, to our God, the maker of heaven and earth, all that is, without whose without whose creative words spoke everything into existence, without whom the sustaining power, life itself, would just spin out of existence, we couldn't take our next breath without the power of the creator God, our king. But what's it mean to say that this person who made everything is our king? We're going to talk a little bit about that today, what this idea of a kingship is. I have a dog named Rose. If y'all ever met Rose, any dog owners, y'all dog people in here? Anybody got a bad dog? You know, bad dogs, I can see a couple of hands going up. Bad dogs are tough, man. You know, bad dogs, you, uh, they'll, they can, they'll just wreck everything. Sometimes a bad dog is a danger not only to your property. A bad dogs are a danger to themselves, right? Run out in front of cars or whatever. Um, Rose is not a too bad of a dog. She generally minds. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, it's easy for me to like Rose because Rose just loves me. I don't know what it is. I don't know if dogs can, like, sniff out the alpha personality in a family or something, you know, but, but, like, I'll come in and Rose looks at me, you know. She just always... She minds me better than anybody else in the family. My, my, my son, Jed, my daughter, Leela, my wife, Susan, always get aggravated at how Rose will deal with, with, uh, with dad, right? Maybe it's because I went and picked her up as a pup. I don't know, and we bonded early. From a very early age, whenever I fed Rose, I'd make her do some things before she, she could eat. I'd put the food in front of her, and if she started to eat, I'd, I'd not let her. I'd make her sit or whatever, you know, or lay down or shake my hand and then I'd say okay and when I said okay then she could eat but she couldn't eat until I said okay i wanted to establish that i was in charge right from the time she was a very very young pup and then i'd also play with her and have fun with her you know and uh, you know, we don't have a fence we live on 3 acres and we don't have a fence and we didn't roses roses an inside outside dog she spends her days outside and her nights sometimes inside sometimes outside but we don't have a fence and i didn't really want to build a big fence and so what I did is I got one of these shock collars. Do you know these shock collars? There's a radio tower that sits in our kitchen. So I call it a radio tower because that's what they call it. It's not really a tower. It's a little box, you know. And it sends out a signal, and she's got a, she's got a collar on with a little box on it. And if she gets more than, I don't know how far, so far from that, that tower, it'll be better. And if she goes much further than that, it will shock her, right? So she's not allowed to get too far from the house. And I put this collar on her that will shock her unless she does what I want her to do. Because I want to be in control of my dog, Rose. Now, I want it for her own good. I don't want her to stray away and, you know, get hit by a car or something. I've not used these shock collars on my children yet, but I've been tempted to. Right? I've been tempted to. What we're talking about today is control, manipulation, How we should think about our relationship to others and to God in terms of power and control. And getting others to do what we want them to do. Sometimes because we want them to do it for their own good. Parents in the audience, you know the times whenever your children were making choices that you knew were harmful for them and you just wanted to shake them by the shoulders and say, Do what I'm telling you to do if you just do it. Don't you know I'm trying to make you do this for your own good? There's a text in Mark 10, chapter 40. Or, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 40 to 42. Goes like this. I'm just gonna read the verse and brethren turn to it. Jesus called the apostles to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones, listen to that phrase, their great ones. Their great ones exercise authority over over them, but it shall not be so among you. You know how power in the world works, right? Those who have the power, those who have the strength to enforce their will on those around them do so. The ones with the power will call them the great ones, the ones with authority, You know, when you see this at the extreme, it's it's tyrannical is what we'll call it. Tyrants. You know what a tyrant is like. Tyrants are all alike. They control through any means necessary. Oftentimes, their means of control are brutal and vicious. Sometimes, their means of control are brilliant and devious. They'll use violence, intimidation, lies, tricks, fear, money, promise of reward, they are skilled at learning the weakness of others and using that weakness as a means of control. Flattery, cons, brute force, promise of love or lust, even literally anything it takes to control, to enforce that they want on the world around them, to enforce their will on the world. They want power. They want power. Control and there's literally nothing they won't do to get it. That's a tyrant. I stated it at its extreme there. I wonder if we couldn't talk to some of the tyrants out there and ask them to justify some of the things they've done To exercise their control on the world, I wouldn't, I wonder if they wouldn't say, well, it's for their own good. I know my shot collar seems mean, but you know, it's for their own good. But Jesus doesn't use those means of control. He was God, He was the King, He has all the power. Nothing that has been created, was created, except through him. We're told that in the Gospel of John. And yet he emptied himself. Though he wasn't... You and I, we try to grasp for power and control in little ways or big ways. We want to be the king. The king is the one in control. We want to be the one in control. And yet Jesus, who was in very nature God, did not grasp for that power rather he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. We're told this in Philippians. He did not clutch at power. He emptied his palms. He was not like the great ones of this world. You know how the great ones work? You know how the ones with power and control, the great ones in our society and the world work? Then you know how they get power and influence? Not so with you, says Jesus. Now that phrase, the great ones, is interesting because it it parallels with another phrase used in Galatians 6. I think it's the very first chapter of Galatians 6. It's really interesting to me. This is what it says. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit, or some translations put it, the spiritual ones among you, not the great ones among you, the spiritual ones among you, should gently restore that person. But be careful that you may also, lest you also be tempted, right? This business of correcting and controlling and rebuking others is a careful business. It's touchy, it's it's, things can go wrong. When you try to tell others what they ought to do, when you try to correct them, even when you see them doing something you know is bad for themselves or others, it's tough to do this well. You know what? In a matter of fact, not all of us should do that. Who among us should take it upon themselves to correct someone who's in sin? Only the spiritual ones among us. Right? We know how the great ones exercise power and influence. We don't want to be tyrannical like that. We don't want to be tyrants. And yet when we see someone doing something that's harming themselves or others, how do we help them? Oh, that's tough business. Only the spiritual ones should even try that. Only the spiritual ones among us should go to them and rebuke them. What, how do we, what, what does this say about control, right? I mean, think about all the ways that we influence try to influence or control the lives around us. Do you know Jesus, do you know what Jesus talked about more than anything else in Scripture? Kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God. That was his favorite sermon topic. Have you ever wondered what the kingdom of God is? Sometimes we hear kingdom of God just as a phrase that means um, heaven, right? The kingdom of God is heaven. But I think it means more than that. And Jesus talked in strange ways about the kingdom of God. Sometimes he said the kingdom of God was already on earth. Sometimes he said the kingdom of God is currently coming on earth. And sometimes he said the kingdom of God is yet to come, (laughs) He talked in all three ways about the kingdom of God. Well, here's I'm gonna, I want to suggest to you a very simple way of understanding what the kingdom of God is. And, and my recommendation for how we understand the kingdom of God starts with how we understand what a kingdom is. What's a kingdom? A kingdom is not hard. This is the range of um, control that a, that a king has, right? So, for example, if you're in France... You got to do what the king of France says, right? How come? Well, because he's the king, (laughs) right? The king of a dominion is the person who says what's going to happen in that dominion. So the king of France gets to say what's going to happen in France. Now, if you leave France and go into Germany or whatever, well, then the king of France, it's not his will that matters. It's the king of Germany. It's his will that matters, right? So a kingdom is the range of a king's effective will. A kingdom is the range of a king's effective will. A king's kingdom is all the places where what the king wants to be done is what gets done. You, ladies and gentlemen, you have a kingdom. You do. That's what it is to be a person. You and I, all of us, however small or large it is, there's a sphere of this world where what you want to be done is what gets done. And if that's taken from you, if someone tries to take over your power for self-determination, to overrun your will, to brainwash you or control you, that is a very, that's exactly the kind of tyrannical stuff we're talking about. So, For some people, they feel like they have very little power in the world. But they still have the power that's inside them. My daughter is 13 now. I wonder if I'm going to have to start, stop using this as an example, but it's just such a good one for me. Pretty soon, if she gets wind of this, I might have to stop using it. But um, when she was very young, my daughter would tell me everything. You know how young kids, they, they don't know how to hide their insides yet, right? So you look at their face, and you know exactly what they're thinking and feeling because they haven't learned how to create a mismatch between what's going on inside of them and their facial expressions, Right? And so they don't know how to hide from people. They don't know how to hide themselves from people. And then they hit puberty and things start changing. They start developing as people. And she doesn't want Daddy to know everything she's thinking and feeling. She has something inside that she veils she to me. And sometimes I'll ask her what she's thinking or feeling and she doesn't want to tell me. And if I'm a wise father, I won't probe too hard. Because that's her kingdom. She decides What to show and what not to show. And that's good. That's her developing as a person. My job as a father is to help her learn to reign in her kingdom in the right kind of way. Now I'm going to say what that means and how that's consistent with God being our king in a second. Right? But if I'm a tyrant... If I want to control, if I don't have enough faith that God will take care of my daughter, that I think I have to take it on myself, I will grab her by the shoulders and I'll say, no, you will do what I want you to do. You will think what I want you to think. You will, you will show me what I, you will tell me what you're thinking right now. Right? But that's a mistake. That's to be a tyrant. That is to try to have control and influence like I have with my dog with a shot collar. But she's not a dog. She's a person. And that's the difference between a person and a non-person. Right? What a person is is something with will, with a kingdom. We have human will. And God's design in this world is not merely that he should override us or that he should consume us, that, we should, that he should put shock collars on us so we would all do the right things. No, his design, his plan is for us to be people with our own will and yet to voluntarily learn to become the kind of people who can live our kingdom under the umbrella of his kingdom. That's love. Not just control, love. In John 15, Jesus says this to his his followers. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I've made known to you. Now listen to that verse. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, for you know the master's business. Now, how does that make sense? Well, think about maybe the difference between a slave or a servant and a friend. A slave or a servant doesn't know the master's business. The slave or the servant just does what he's he's told. Whereas the friend is involved in the plan. He's a partner in the process. Right? The friend knows what the, what the master's trying to do and brings himself or herself along in the plans of the master, not just doing what he's told. Right? Now, think about there's a, I'm going to read this one in Luke 17. A really interesting little small parable that has to do with what I'm talking about. Listen to this. Luke 17. Uh, well, I need my glasses. Sorry. I forget that I need them sometimes. Uh, Luke 17, verse 7. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would, he rather, would not he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I'll, eat, while I'll eat and drink, and then after that you can eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy, or I like the phrase unprofitable, we are unprofitable servants, for we have only done what we were told to do. For a long time, I thought what this verse meant was, yeah, you know what, if you're doing the the stuff God tells you to do, don't think that makes you any, don't like, you know, get thinking highly of yourself just because you're doing what you're supposed to do. You're just an unworthy servant. But I think actually the verse means, this little parable means something a little different. I want to recommend to you. You try it on see what you think. Before I explain what I think this verse means, how that's connected to the friendship stuff in John 15, I want to tell a story, and I think the story will help make sense of it. Okay. I like telling the story because in the story I'm like the hero, and I like stories where I'm a hero. I'm, I'm about probably 13 years old. I'm growing up at the AM Church of Christ in Bryan College Station, Texas. We got a bunch of pews, and we have met, we've, uh, we've uh, decided to update all the pews. So we're taking all the old pews out and putting new pews in, and there's a couple guys in the church, at the time I thought of them as old men, they were probably about my age now, but I thought of them as old men, and they were going through and taking all the pews out. And a couple of us, a couple of us young guys, 12 you know, kids, got uh, volunteered to kind of help them that day. Uh, it was me and another guy, so, so two old guys, two 12-year-olds, I'm one of the 12-year-olds. And the master, my master, think of it as like a master-apprentice relationship, right? My master would be under, we'd be under the pew, and he'd say, uh, hand me that ratchet there, and I'd hand him a ratchet, and he'd do some things, and hand me that screwdriver, and I'd hand him a screwdriver, and he'd do some things, and then after a while, we'd be able to pick the pew up and move it. Now, I was paying attention to what my master was doing. I started figuring out, oh, this is what he's doing. First, he uses the ratchet to do this, then he uses the screwdriver to do that, and because I was paying attention before long... He didn't have to tell me what he needed. I I knew what he needed because I saw what he was doing. I understood his plan in the world, and I was involving myself in his plan. Now, my buddy, the unprofitable servant... He was not actually paying attention. Sure, if, you know, if his master said, hand me, hand me the crescent wrench, he handed him the crescent wrench. If he said, hand me that screwdriver, he handed the screwdriver. But he was not at all paying attention to what the master was doing. He had no vision for the master's plan in the world. He only did what he was told. But when you're friends, when you're partners in some good work and some creative effort in the world, you're not just doing what you're told. You're seeing what God is doing in the world and you're creatively involving your own will in the master's plans. You, the unprofitable servant is the one who has to do what he's told. Who's the profitable servant then? Well, maybe the profitable servant is the friend, the one who knows the master's business and doesn't have to be told what to do. You and I, we know what God's doing in the world. He's trying to save people. He's trying to give them life and love. He's trying to give them community and identity. Sometimes you and I, we have our relationship with God damaged because we think what our relationship with our king is like is he just wants to tell us what to do, and we do it. And so we say to him, God, what do you want us to do here at Mineral Springs Church of Christ? Tell us what to do, and we'll do it. As if we're remote-controlled cars or automatons. But we're not. We're his children. What we want matters to him. Sometimes um, uh, students that I teach at Harding you know, they're in times of big transition, and they're trying to decide who they're going to marry and what job they're going to take, really big decisions. And they're still young people, so they haven't had a lot of decisions. You know, when kids are young, we make all the decisions for them. And as they get older, we, we gradually, okay, fine, you can dress yourself now, <laughs> right? You know, we, we gradually give them more and more decisions. Okay, you can decide how you're going to, you can drive now, Right? We gradually give them more and more decisions. And eventually when they get to college, we give them all of them. Okay, tell us, who are you going to marry? What job are you going to have? It's up to you, right? And many of them, especially places where they haven't had a lot of practice making their own decisions, where their parents have made all their decisions for them, that can be terrifying for them. And so they feel like, I just want God to tell me, what: am I supposed to marry this person? Am I supposed to take that job? They'll come in my office and they'll say, Dr. Martin, does God want me to take that job? And I'll say, maybe God just wants you to decide. Right? Look, whether you decide to take the job or not, you can't think of your relationship with God like your remote control car and you got to figure out what there's one thing you're supposed to do and you got to go do that thing. That's not how it works. God's interested in what you want. What kind of beautiful thing do you want to bring into the world? What is it that you see that's good about this relationship that you can be that you think can be fanned into the flame of a Christian marriage? What do you think? You're not just an employee of God, you're his friend, you're his partner as he's bringing his will into the world. And what you want matters to God. So in order for this, for this um, partnership with God to work well, we have to be able to see what God's doing in the world. And we have to involve ourselves in the world around us in that way. Now this is, this is like the relationship between a recipe follower and a creative cook, right? Right? Think about this. Now, I don't know if any of you, you know, I I think the internet's great. I I love it. I made some pancakes the other day that were fantastic. Here's how I made them. I opened my computer, and I googled best fluffy pancakes, and I hit enter, and a recipe came up, and I looked at the recipe, and then I'd do it, and then I'd look back at the recipe, and I would do it. I was just, I mean, I was a recipe follower. I had no idea how any of the ingredients I was putting in the bowl combined or how, I, I didn't understand the recipe. I was just following it, right? But sure enough, some great pancakes came out the other end of the, of the process. But I'm just a recipe follower. I'm not impacting my will. I'm just following the directions on the screen there, right? But now there's one area of, of cook where I become maybe a little more than a recipe follower. A little more. I don't want to overstate this. A little more. And that's when it comes to smoking meats. I moved to Arkansas. I think I mentioned this the other, the one uh, previous le- lesson here, but moved to Arkansas, and nobody here knew how to smoke a brisket. It didn't seem like, and I needed. I wanted to know how to smoke a brisket, so you know, I, I went on. There's a guy named Aaron Franklin who I think is pretty good at smoking briskets, and I learned from him and practiced it several times. And I've done it enough now smoking meats to where I kind of have an idea. I kind of understand the process more, right? And so now, because I understand it, I can like. I can impact my will on the final product in ways that I couldn't before. If I want it to be a little more like this or a little less like this or I want to try this or I want to play with that, I see how the process works because I have knowledge and experience with it and I can bring my will into the world creatively as the result of my efforts. When we create beautiful things in the world, that's part of our involvement in the world. God wants that for us, right? He wants us to do that. And not just in an employee-slave kind of way. Again, it's like the relationship between a father and children, which is why the Bible uses this metaphor so much. My own kids. You know, when they're very young, we still don't give them much range of will, but we give them some, right? So uh, it's Saturday, and uh, we don't have anything going on, and they're trying to decide what to do. They've been on the computer too long, and I say, hey, guys, just go outside and play. I just go outside and play. Um, What should we do outside, Father? I don't want to tell you what to do. I want you to go decide what to do. I want you to use your will and your desires and your wants. I want you to have a vision of the world, and I want you to go do it. Right? If I just told you, go climb that tree for 30 minutes and then do this and then do that, no, I don't want to control you like that. I want you to become people, creative people. Who can bring your vision of goodness into the world? And we're going to practice that for a little while. Now I'm going to give you some rules. Now, I'm not going to say you can just do anything. I don't want you to drive off in the car, for example. Not allowed to do that, right? So there is some there are fences, but I don't want it just to just be a relationship where I tell them what to do. All right. I want to read now from uh, from Matthew seven and continue making this, uh, trying to show how control works in the church how proper influence and control works in the church. Here's another verse that confused me for a long time. Matthew chapter 7. Look about verse 6. I think is where I'll start. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? If he asked for a fish, would give him a stake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? For a long time, and maybe still, I'm not, again, I'm going to recommend a way of interpreting it, of this difficult passage. For a long time, I thought, don't throw your pearls to pigs, and don't give your holy things to the dogs, your sacred scripture to the dogs. I thought that meant don't tell Christ, you know, don't tell people about Christ if they're not, if they're you know, if they're unworthy of it. Right? Don't waste your time with people who aren't worthy. If we didn't waste our time with people who aren't worthy, there would be no one to tell. We're all pigs. We're all dogs. None of us are deserving of the grace and the power of Christ in our lives. That text can't mean that. Well, here's a suggestion. Suppose you did give a pearl to a pig. What would the pig do with the pearl? any pig farmers in here what would a, if you gave some, if you gave a if you threw a bunch of pearls into it what would a, what would the pigs do Do you think, think they need it would it be would it be of any um, uh, nutritional value to them wouldn't do them any good at all would it what if you gave the bible to a dog that bad dog we were talking about earlier it eat the homework you know It's going to eat the the sacred scriptures up. And what kind of nutritional value is it going to be to the dog? It's not going to help them. Here's the point. When you force your good things on people who are not interested, you won't help them. They are of no value to them. And as a matter of fact, they're just going to turn and tear you to pieces. When you try to control others, even with your good intentions, you don't help them. All you do is poison your relationship with them. They will turn and tear you to pieces. So what do you do? You wait for them to ask. That's why the next verse matters. You just wait. Now, when I say for them to ask, I don't necessarily mean literally they ask like, tell me what you think about such and such. There are ways that we indicate that we're interested in, that we're open to certain conversations that's more than just like words. For example, you ever eaten a a sandwich in front of a dog? I mean, the dog's asking you a question, isn't it, right? I mean... Dogs can't talk, but, you know, please, can I have some sandwich? Right? I mean, you know the dog wants some sandwich. You can't force your good things on people. You love them, you stay in relationship for them, and you wait for them to develop a, um, what's the right word to use here? A, um, A posture of openness to you. And then maybe your good things will be beneficial to them. Then maybe you can help them. You have to wait for them to ask, which is what our Father does. He's there waiting for us. Pray to me. And we get in community like this and we're a community of prayerful love where we go before our Father and we say, God, the world is some ways that we don't understand why it's this way. Will you help us see Father, help us see how we can impact our community here in Mineral Springs. Help us see how we can bring your will into this part of the community where we live. Help us see where we can overcome some of the anger and the divisions and the hostilities and the blindnesses of one another. Make us a community, oh God. Will you help us see how to do that? And then if you see something, if you have some vision for some good or beautiful thing, God says, I've called you friends. Go get started. <laughs> Bring it into the world. I want to finish this morning, almost finished, with text from Revelation 7. I'm going to turn here to Revelation chapter 7. Again, we're talking about the sense in which God is our king and the sense in which uh, he exercises control and influence over us. And what that teaches about how we should exercise control and influence over others. Um, Revelation chapter 7. Actually, before I get there, I want to say one more thing here about how we influence control about, uh, around others. So, um, think about the ways in which we try to control those around us. One of the ways that you and I often try to control those around us when things aren't going the way we want them to go is by sheer force of will or power, right? Right? So the powerful ones, the ones with the, uh, maybe it's just strength sometimes, or maybe it's influence or social power, maybe it's charisma. But the ones with power sometimes just through through sheer force of will try to impose what they think is right or good on others or a community sometimes. This is uh, tyrannical. It's a despot. I have to be careful as a father in my house not to be a tyrant. I have to be real careful because I'm given to that. I'm a strong personality and uh, uh, I have to be careful. <laughs> it comes from a good place. I want good things for those that whom I love. But if I try to just order them or control them, that's not the way the community is supposed to be. Other times, People, those who don't have the power in a social setting, it's not that they stop trying to influence and control. They try to influence and control too, but they have to use different means. Sometimes they use guile or trickery, right, to get those who they, uh, to choose. They use guile to get, like you ever tried to get somebody, you wanted them to do something, so you figured out how you could have the conversation, you wanted, to, you wanted them to think that they chose the thing that you wanted them to do? <laughs> Uh, for example, here, let me just use kids because kids are such a great example. One time when my daughter was really young, she's three or four, and my son is still in a crib, and my daughter has just transitioned into a regular bed, and she wanted to switch rooms with Jed one night and sleep in his room and have him sleep in her room, and this was going to be a mess and a pain, and this is. But My daughter's kind of stubborn, so I didn't want to just tell her no. So I used guile, right, to try to control and influence things. And I said, well, Leela, we could do that. You could go sleep in Jed's room, and Jed could come sleep in here. But whoever's room it is is the person whose toys they are, right? So if Jed comes in here, he gets all your toys. Is that what you want? Would you rather keep your toys, or do you want to go sleep in Jed's room, right? What am I doing? I'm using guile to try to... Now, my daughter was too quick. And she said, no, Daddy, I could just sleep over there and still keep all my toys, Right. She refused that. You know how you do that sometimes you try to as a parent, you try to get these either ors, because if you, if you get these fake either ors, you can trick kids sometimes. But my daughter was too quick on knowing that either or was a fake one. Right. But anyway, so we use guile to try to get people to choose what we want them to choose. Sometimes we use the Carrot. Some good thing that will, hey, there's some good thing that I'll do. If you'll do this, you'll get the good thing. And some of these these ways we use to try to control and manipulate those around us, they're really, really clever, right? You ever use pity to try to manipulate and control those around you? There's this great scene from a book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's a really weird book. (laughs) But in The Great Divorce, there's a solid country... And there's some spirits, some spirits who are basically get to go to heaven. And there are some ghosts who the spirits are trying to convince them to stay in heaven, right? But they keep refusing to be in heaven. And there's one of the great spirits is a woman named Sarah Smith, who was a housewife and nobody knew who she was in life, but she was a remarkable person, full of love and goodness. And she was a great spirit in the heavenly country. Her husband was named Frank, and Frank was not. He was a ghost. And Sarah Smith was trying to convince Frank to stay in the solid country. Now, the way C.S. Lewis depicted this, maybe I'm telling you all too much, but this is fun, so I'm going to do it anyway, was there was, uh, Frank was a tragic actor, a tragedian, right? He had, well, he doesn't say this, but I picture him wearing a top hat, you know, and dark clothes and tall, Abraham Lincoln-looking kind of guy, you know, very, like, expressive, you know. You know how, like, have you ever seen the, the old movies, people overact? in really old movies. The reason that people overacted in old movies is because they were Broadway stage actors. And when you act on stage, you have to really sell those facial expressions so people in the back of the audience can see them. So they put on bright makeup and you really sell those facial expressions. But when you put a camera in front of them, it's right there and it looks like overacting, right? But anyway, so this is a tragic actor, right? He's really selling those facial expressions. And he's trying to figure out how Sarah, his wife, could have joy in heaven while he's down in the, in the gray country below. And he's depicted as a, um, about a three-foot-tall dwarf holding a leash, where the leash goes up to the tragic actor, and the tragic actor has a, has, a, has a collar around his neck. And the dwarf is holding the tragic actor, and the tragic actor is the one talking. Sarah Smith, his wife in life, was talking to the dwarf. But the tragic actor is the one talking. And he's saying things like, oh, Sarah, I thought you loved me. How could you have joy here in heaven without me? Right? And Sarah Smith's talking to the dwarf and saying, oh, Frank, stop using pity to try to control others. Don't you see what it's doing? And as he's doing it, he's shrinking. He's getting smaller and smaller. You're using pity to try to control me. Ever done that? You're in a fight with your brother or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife and you're driving down the road and you're looking out the window do they see me don't they see how much how much, how much i'm hurting right if my if my mom was here i probably wouldn't say this but maybe i would because we've talked about it she knows it. she used to do this moms do this by the way sorry moms no that's fine you can go over to mike's for supper i made all this supper but if you want to go over to mike's that's fine go ahead Right? We use pity to try to manipulate others. Pity is one something we use whenever we maybe we don't feel like we have the power to enforce our will, so we try to use other clever ways. We use asymmetric guerrilla warfare, right? To try to bring our will into the world. All right, Revelation seven. I'm never going to remember these glasses. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In the age to come, we truly will be in the kingdom of God, for He will be on the throne. And we, with all the multitude of saints, will be around the throne, before Him on our faces, worshiping Him. And yet His relationship with us won't be like one of the great ones of the world, but like one of the spiritual ones mentioned in, Revelation, in Genesis six, Galatians 6. We should almost never attempt to manipulate or control others. Instead, we love them. Like God waiting on our prayers. We should wait for them to seek our counsel. We wait eagerly for these opportunities because we see what God is doing in the world and we are his partners in his ministry. We are his friends. (laughs) Have you just stop and think about that? The audacity of scripture. Do you believe you're the friend of God? The friend of God, the maker of heaven and earth, beauty and power and goodness. You want to know your worth? You're a friend of God. Now, none of this, the fact that we're his partner, that doesn't usurp God's kingship. He is on the throne. We want him on the throne. We ask him to be on the throne, be our God, be our king. We see that it is good and right for him to be on the throne and not us. We don't want the control. We don't want to be tyrants. We don't want to control others. We ask him prayerfully to be on the throne in our lives. We ask him prayerfully to be on the throne in our communities. But we also know that he has called us friends. He does not desire to control us with shot collars around our neck the way a master controls a dog. He wants to work with us. He wants us to work with him, to join him on the throne in a sense because he cares about what we want. Isn't that amazing? Let's finish with the prayer. Oh, loving King, thank you for making us please help us to order our lives and our will under the umbrella of your kingship so that we really can be your friends. Give us eyes to see your goodness. Give us the knowledge and experience and intelligence that will allow us to bring your good things into our communities and our families and our lives. Help us to be your partners in what you're doing in the world as you're saving the world from sin. Thank you for calling us your friends. We know we don't deserve to be your friend. You see our sin. Help us be better. Amen.